You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, British Prime Minister Theresa May has come off the fence in favour of what's being called a hard Brexit. Our London editor, Dennis Staunton, reports from the Tory conference in Birmingham on where the process goes from here and how Ireland will need to adjust to the new reality. And Tom Hennigan in Brazil on the shock rejection by Colombians of the peace agreement between their government and the FARC guerrilla group. Is the bloody 52-year war now set to resume? As Paris enthusiastically embraces Oscar Wilde's memory with a new exhibition on his life and work, Mara Marlowe talks about the show and how he has been viewed. So now we know it. The UK is going for what we are calling hard Brexit. It's clear from Theresa May's speech at the Tory conference. Truth is, she is now showing her real colours, a Brexiteer in sheep's clothing. Dennis, this is hardly a surprise, though many had clung to the hope that she was a secret wet. I think many clung to the hope, whether she was a secret wet or not, that Britain might take a more cautious approach to getting out of the European Union. Some of the people who have been campaigning for years to leave the European Union have been proposing that as a first step, Britain should uh, be part of the European economic area, rather like Norway is, and that then from that position of some kind of stability and security could start to extricate itself over years from bits and pieces. Instead of which, uh, Theresa May has made clear that uh, they're not going to really seek to stay in the in the sing- European single market. She didn't explicitly say that, but she said that uh, if it comes to a choice between uh, controlling immigration and various other things, that she, clearly she was going to come down on the side of controlling immigration. And so that doesn't seem to really open up any possibility of Britain remaining within the European single market, which means that as you say, she's going for the idea of a hard Brexit, which is terminology she doesn't like. She says she doesn't like this idea of a soft or a hard Brexit. But nonetheless, they're actually quite useful terms because a soft Brexit is the kind of gradual approach I described. And a hard Brexit really means that uh, Britain is going to have to negotiate a deal uh, of its own, uh, of a kind which uh, we haven't seen before. And are all her ministers now singing off the same hymn sheet? They are more or less. Now, there's, uh, you know, some of them are singing slightly in one key or another, but they're certainly singing more or less in the on the off the same hymn sheet. So what you have is the more Eurosceptic ministers, uh, they tend to be uh, hinting a little bit further. So, for example, Liam Fox, uh, who's the International Trade Secretary, and also Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, both have really hinted very strongly that Britain will not only leave the single uh, market, but also the EU Customs Union, because uh, without leaving the European Union's Customs Union, Britain can't negotiate all these marvellous new trade deals that uh, Liam Fox would like to do. That, of course, is bad news for us because that really raises the prospect of some kind of a border uh, remaining in place in 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 Ireland, whether it's a virtual border or a, a, an actual hard physical border. That's right, actually. The customs union in that sense is much more significant for the border because you really do have to control uh, goods uh, that, that are moving across and there's this whole issue of tariffs. And again, a lot of this would also depend on the kind of arrangement that and the kind of trade deal that Britain is able to come up with with the European Union. But in uh, a very short space of time, it's very difficult to see how they could come up with something. So there would probably be, have, have to be some kind of interim, or interim arrangements. Uh, the, the, you know, on the other hand, you've got uh, you know, uh, 
someone like Philip Hammond, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, very, very eager to reassure business because what happened as soon as Theresa May announced that she was going to trigger Article 50 and formal exit talks by the end of next March and she made clear she was going for a hard exit was that the pound tumbled on the international currency markets once again. And so it really went down. Uh, you know, and, and this is the kind of turbulence you, ha- you saw in the first few days after the referendum vote. And now you appear to be seeing it coming back again. So he tried to reassure business that actually, you know, they would honor all kinds of commitments of EU funding for business and that really they would consider the interests of business. And he said that whatever the British voted for in the referendum in June, they didn't vote to be poorer or to be less prosperous. Indeed. And Minister for Foreign Affairs, Charlie Flanagan, has been talking specifically in, in the context of May's declaration, I think, about uh, the need now to look for a special status for Northern Ireland. And Alex Salmon of the SNP, who was here last week, was also suggesting that maybe Scotland and Northern Ireland could both look for a soft Brexit instead of the hard Brexit that the rest of the United Kingdom is is uh, looking for. He, he suggests that uh, it would be possible for regions to affiliate to uh, EFTA. Um, how do you think that is likely to go down with uh, the Tories? It certainly is not in any sense consistent with the tone that you're getting from the Conservatives, so that they consistently speak about a United Kingdom solution, a solution that's good for the United Kingdom as a whole. James Brokenshire, the Northern Ireland Secretary, was speaking at the Conservative conference this morning, and he said that, uh, you know, that the, Theresa May was absolutely committed to all parts of the United Kingdom, and of course that they would take into account and they would uh, try to, make, to protect Northern Ireland, and particularly issues around the border and the common travel area. But there was no suggestion, and there is never any suggestion from anybody within the government that they're looking at any kind of differentiated arrangement where, uh, as you describe, Scotland or Northern Ireland could have a different relationship with the European Union to what the rest of the United Kingdom has. And I think you would also run into difficulties, say, with uh, some elements in Northern Ireland. So Arlene Foster, the... uh, uh, the First Minister of Northern Ireland and, and leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, she's clearly uh, thinking also in terms of a solution which takes into account the special circumstances of Northern Ireland, but nonetheless uh, is a solution for the United Kingdom. And that, again, was the language she was using this morning at a at a fringe meeting at the conference. So I think as of now, there is no uh, you know, appetite, or at least the idea of a differentiated uh, solution, is not on the agenda for the Conservative government. But of course, uh, you know that kind of thing could come up, uh, you know, later on. And so, for example, one example of where you might see something like that happening is what we were talking about a moment ago about the customs union. And there is, uh, you know, a region of, uh, you know, on the border of a little kind of an enclave on the border of Switzerland and southern Germany which for the purposes of uh, you know, of certain uh, kinds of trade and certain kinds of uh, economic activity is in the Swiss customs union, but it's also in the European Union customs union. So there are, I mean, this is obviously a very small area, but it is possible in theory that you could come up with creative solutions uh, to an issue like the island of Ireland so that you might be able to give some kind of special status to Northern Ireland in that way. But it's certainly that, you know, none of that is really in the forefront of anybody's mind, I think. 
and what in the Conservative Party right what now. What we now know about, about the time frame, the, the Europeans are still insisting that nothing can start in terms of talks until the, the March triggering of Article uh, 50. But uh, the, the British are talking about perhaps talks about talks. What, what is your sense of what's going to happen now? They would like talks about talks, and there were, and I think that the, the the hope was that now that Theresa May has, uh, you know, said what she said, and given the sort of the date, she's, uh, you know, the the Europeans know uh, when it's going to start happening, that maybe there there might be some kind of preliminary, uh, you know, uh, footling around and talking about talks, but the the noises from Brussels have been exactly the opposite, both from Donald Tusk and also from the European Commission saying, uh, very interested to hear what you say. We start talking as soon as you invoke Article 50. There's a summit in Brussels on uh, the 9th and the 10th of March, so that might be a moment for her to uh, to actually uh, uh, pull the trigger. But I think that you know, we, we, we speak all the time about this uh, period of up to two years of negotiations to withdraw from the European Union. And it's, uh, it's very probable that within two years, uh, Britain will actually leave the European Union. But what is likely, or at least what would be desirable, I think, from both sides would be that you'd have to put some kind of interim arrangements in place pending the negotiation of further agreements on all kinds of things, trade obviously being the biggest but also things like access to healthcare, you know, uh, for uh, EU citizens living in Britain or British citizens living in the European Union. All of this stuff. It may be that that you know that the details of an awful lot of this can't actually be worked out in the space of two years, and so they have to put in some kind of transitional arrangements. As you remember from Brussels, Brussels loves transitional arrangements. So you could have some kind of transitional arrangements going over a period of years while they're negotiating. Uh, the actual final deal. But Britain would formally nonetheless be actually out of the European Union at that stage. Thank you very much, Dennis. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Colombia's 52-year war has left about 220,000 dead and 6 million displaced from their homes. Following years of talks in Havana, the government and FARC guerrillas reached a peace deal which was voted on this weekend. And despite polls saying that the deal would be passed uh, substantially, the referendum was brought down by the narrowest of narrow majorities. The country's in shock. Tom Hennigan, why the turnaround? What happened in the last few days? Well, that's still uh, the subject of of great debate in Colombia um, itself. And there's been a number of different theories ranging from bad weather along the Caribbean coastline, which depressed turnout there. Some people have said if the weather had been better, that, uh, you know, there could have been the votes there to tip it the other way. Um, but even even then, you have to think, as you pointed out, that you know this has been a terrible war. It's been going on for decades, and um, I think it's sort of facile to imagine that bad weather is the reason that this was defeated. The turnout the turn- was 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 as low as thirty seven percent. Unbelievable, really, when you think what was um, what was being decided here, uh, that just so many people stayed away, and. Uh, now you can sense amongst the government of uh, Juan Manuel Santos, um, the president, that there is a self-criticism going on and that this um, uh, has involved, uh, you know, officials saying that, look, this might have been, we might have tried to ram this through too quickly. We might have taken this for granted. The peace deal was only signed a week before the actual referendum was held, even though all the issues were already being discussed. And um, there was a certain level of complacency. 
And um, I think also the actual uh, deal itself, they did not meet the no campaigns um, questions that they raised, principally uh, the fact that um, FARC leaders, commanders would not suffer any jail time for uh, human rights abuses and war atrocities that they were responsible for. Um, And there was a, I think, a a recognition now that there was a hidden no vote that people maybe didn't want to tell pollsters that they were voting against peace as, as, as it was framed. But they felt that, look, I'm in favor of peace, but I'm not in favor of impunity. The FARC is responsible for a huge number of atrocities going back decades. And many Colombians, it seems now, were uneasy about allowing those commanders take seats in the Congress without really paying any um, price for, for what they had done in the past. And that has very quickly become the focus of how to get out of this mess now is to try and see can the government and the FARC meet with the no side, which was led by a former president, Alvaro Uribe, and somehow come to an arrangement where the FARC will open, um, be open to allowing uh, some of its leadership serve some sort of um, jail time before they are allowed to take uh, their seats in Congress? Because the peace deal guaranteed, um, I think it was 10 unelected Uh, seats in the Congress for the FARC. And many people were like, hold on, these guys are coming from a war which was a brutal war against civilians on both sides, not just on the FARC, has to be recognized on the military side as well. And basically, they're going to have to say sorry, do a bit of community time, and then just walk into the Congress unelected. And many people just felt that that was a step too far. The the similarities with the uh, Good Friday Agreement and the vote that we had here are really quite striking, particularly in this area of not quite an amnesty, but almost an amnesty for 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 combatants. And it it was notable that here that was the point on which there was some serious opposition to the, uh, the the Good Friday Agreement, particularly in the North. Uh, I suppose the level of violence in Colombia was far, far exceeded anything that we experienced here. Well, this is it. You know, the FARC, particularly in the 90s and the early part of this millennium, when um, it was militarily particularly strong, was duplicitous in peace negotiations um, in, in 1999. Um, the government then conceded an area the size of Switzerland uh, called a truce. And it subsequently turned out that the FARC negotiated in bad faith, rearmed and went on the offensive. And that was only defeated when the U.S. government um, uh, gave massive aid to the uh, government of, of Alvaro Uribe to re-equip the military and push the FARC back. So um, and, and there are many memories from that time of um, FARC mortaring villages, carrying out massacres, um, other sorts of atrocities. And again, I have to emphasize the atrocities were not all just on the FARC side, but there were many um, carried out by the military and by right wing paramilitary groups that in many areas of the country cooperated closely with the military. Um, But the FARC was also heavily involved in the drug trade. um, And, you know, the FARC was founded in 1964, but was a relatively minor group, one of many in Colombia um, during decades of violence until in the early 80s, it started involving itself in the drug trade, um, opened up a massive revenue stream, allowed it to recruit heavily to um, better arm itself and go on the fence if it expanded massively all over the country. So for many Colombians, they don't necessarily associate the FARC with a Marxist insurgency. They associate it with drug trafficking. 
And then another very, very emotional um, um, issue for many Colombians was the FARC um, practice of kidnapping for ransom. Um, many people uh, spent years in jungle prisons on, in horrible conditions. They've come out and they've told their, their stories. Um, and then there were many uh, families who were victims of the FARC. And even if you look at the career of Alvaro Uribe, the former president who led the No campaign, uh, his father was murdered by the FARC during a, a botched kidnapping attempt. Um, and so for him, it seems to have been a very personal issue um, a very emotional issue, and and I think that was um, the case for many Colombians. FARC has responded by saying that they're still committed to the peace process and they're still committed to the deal that that has been done. Is it realistic to think that even even as talks go on, the the process of demobilisation and reintegration of FARC guerrillas will take place, or is it everything on hold now? Everything is on hold right now, um, but the FARC uh, in their first statements um, have made it very clear that they're going to maintain their ceasefire um, and that they are open to trying somehow to salvage this process. But um, in that, um, I think there is another um, story, which is that many Colombians probably felt that they could vote no uh, on Sunday for the very reason that the FARC is not the threat that it once was. Um, it once had over 20,000 fighters organized in f um, various fronts uh, throughout the country. But uh, when the Plan Colombia that the Americans financed um, really got going, the FARC was uh, pushed back. It is now a much smaller fighting force. Um, estimates range around 7,000 fighters in very remote, lightly populated regions, poor regions. And whereas in the 1990s, um, you had a situation where the FARC were, you know, in, in even the capital, Bogota, were able to at times lob mortars into the center of the city, uh, that traveling between the major cities on, on national highways was dangerous. The FARC would set up checkpoints and, and kidnap people. Um, that has all ended and they've been pushed back. So for the majority of Colombians, the... Uh, the reality is that they could vote no to peace, knowing that they wouldn't necessarily um, risk uh, their public security that they have been able to enjoy over the last decade. And that, that the FARC is essentially now a, a much reduced force. And really, the FARC was far more desperate for the peace agreement than the government. Both sides wanted it. But the FARC conceded far more, not just in terms of its eventual aims, but even how the negotiations took place. They started off demanding a ceasefire. They started off demanding a, a zone for them uh, themselves, like in 1999. And President Santos said, listen, you're having none of that. And the FARC said, OK, well, we'll talk anyway. So most of these negotiations took place even as the military was pushing the FARC further and further away from the large population centers in um, Colombia. So the FARC are, are not really today in a position where they can, they have a lot of leverage that they can threaten to go back on a major offensive, um, that they can go on the front foot and make, uh, if I could say, make Colombians pay for voting against peace. They, they don't have that ability. Now, the government and the military know that they cannot be, because of the size of Colombia, the the remoteness of a lot of the terrain, the difficultness of the terrain, that they cannot fully defeat the FARC and that the FARC will always 
uh, have a certain um, amount of money because of its involvement in drug trafficking, that it will be able to sustain itself. So it is a kind of a, a, a deadlock uh, situation between the military and the FARC, but one in which the military hold far more cards than the FARC. And I think that it meant that one, that certain um, percentage of the population felt we can vote no here without experiencing any military consequences. And number two, uh, it means that the FARC doesn't really have a lot of options to play now that the peace has been, the peace deal has been rejected. And so they are making very conciliatory noises that they are willing to try and resolve this impasse. And just, just finally, um, Uribe, you've said, is the, is, the, is the big winner of this vote, much probably to his surprise. Um, is he going to be willing to come in on, on negotiations? Is he going to be willing to see a slightly better deal? Um, or is he just going to push from the outside and, and try and get for Santos to resign? Well, this is a very uh, curious question that um, Uribe is the, the, the face of hardline Colombia against the FARC. Um, and he is um, respected by many Colombians as the man who really broke their grip um, over much of the country uh, in the last decade. And he has that respect, even though his administration was rife with corruption, rife with human rights abuses, all sorts of dodgy allies with right wing paramilitary groups. Um, even even though all of that, many people still have a lot of affection for Uribe. Uh, Uribe is a very determined man. Um, other people would also describe him as a very, very arrogant man. He is someone who tried to get a third term. Uh, the constitution changed to allow himself um, stand for a third term. Um, that was rejected. He handed over to Santa somewhat reluctantly. Um, but Uribe, many people suspect, has always eyed a return to the presidency. Now, his side have, uh, have for the moment not indicated whether they are willing to join with the Santos government and go to Havana and open up talks with the FARC. But one of the demands that the FARC made at the outset of negotiations was a constitutional assembly to re draw up the constitution to implement, um, uh, to safeguard social justice and other things that they were demanding. And they weren't able to get that. Santos said, look, you're not in a position to force us to do that. We're not going to do it. Um, Uribe is also demanding a constitutional assembly, not necessarily to safeguard the things that the FARC wants, but it could be a position now where Santos might be forced down the road of a constitutional assembly that both Uribe and the FARC want. And one of the things that could come out of that is that the constitutional ban on Uribe standing for a third term would be invalidated because it would essentially be a new constitution. Um, so there is a, a, a bit of chatter in Bogota about the fact that maybe Uribe would be willing to go into negotiations with the FARC and the two of them would go for a constitutional assembly, which could potentially benefit both and allow a future peace deal come out of that. Thank you very much, Tom. You're listening to the Irish Times. France gave me asylum, Oscar Wilde claimed. He had been hounded out of England in 1897 after serving a two-year prison sentence for gross indecency. Now, 100,000 people are expected to visit an exhibition, Oscar Wilde, Insolence Incarnate, on his life and oeuvre at the Petit Palais. It closes in mid-January. So, Lara, Paris has gone wild. Is this a first? 
No, I mean, he's always been popular here, I and mean, he's buried here at Pelache Cemetery. Uh, when he died, very tragically, in, in 1900 of meningitis, he was pretty much abandoned and alone. He was in a, a hotel, which is now the Paris' smallest five-star hotel, L'Hôtel, uh, on the left bank in, in the 6th arrondissement. And at that point, you know, he was only a few years out, three years out of prison, and he he even lost his French friends. People sort of snubbed him, shied away from him, not so much because of the homosexuality, but because he was bankrupt and because he'd been in prison. And there's a, a very sad story about André Gide, who'd, who'd been a friend of his, um, being very embarrassed to sit in a cafe with next to Oscar Wilde and wanting to sit with his back to the pavement, and Wilde insisted that he, he face the public, as it were, with, with him, and that was the last time he ever saw Gide. So it's true he was at that point more or less rejected, but his works are, are, are popular here, and um, in 1995, for example, um, one of his plays, uh, The Inconstant Husband, saved a French theater, a Parisian theater, the Théâtre Antoine, and it was just, it was sold out for a year and a half, and, and the theater is still going today. So that shows he's popular. He's, he's one of the few, uh, well, I would, not few, but he is a, an Irish writer whom the French know, whom they're familiar with, along with Beckett, of course, even, even more so than, than Wilde, because Beckett wrote in French. But Wilde was a Francophile. Um, he learned French from the family maid as a child, and he studied French at Portora Royal School in Enniskillen and, and, and at TCD and, and then again at Oxford. He, he used to say that the only two languages that a civilized man uh, needed to know were, were French and Greek, and he wrote his play Salome in French. He wrote it for Sarah Bernhardt, the great uh, actor. He wanted her to, to play the lead role in London. And the British authorities banned it because it was a biblical subject and one didn't have the, the right to do a biblical subject in those days. And Wilde thought that, um, that the British were really Philistines and, and that the French were civilized and people of letters and they appreciated art. And that's why he, he felt um, just such empathy with them. And of course there's a picture of Sarah Bernhardt in the exhibition, isn't it? In, in her costume for Salome. Um, yes, there are several. There are Aubrey Beardsley's drawings of Salome. I think you may be thinking of the, the wonderful, wonderful portrait of Helen Terry uh, wearing a green, it looks like a green velvet dress with sort of Byzantine jewelry on it uh, when she was playing Lady Macbeth. I mean, that was the, the portrait that really stood out for me in the exhibition as, as a, a, a work of genius, just absolutely wonderful, uh, painted by John Singer. Sergeant, uh, the, uh, the American I, I, painter. I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> um, but he, he, he's also buried in Père Lachaise, isn't he? And the, the grave became a, a site of, of some veneration. Of pilgrimage, yes, a sort of shrine. In fact, um, I mean, one story that I heard was that it, it, it was said to be uh, a sort of magical charm for women who were having difficulty in conceiving children and that they would go there and, and kiss this angel uh, done by Jacob Epstein to, you know, for good luck in, in conceiving children. That was one reason people allegedly went there. But it was so covered in lipstick stains, in lipstick kisses, that about 10 years ago the Irish government paid to have a glass 
screen put around uh, the, the sculpture to protect it because the, the, the um, lipstick was actually deteriorating the marble of the sculpture. And, and nowadays, people are still going. I mean, every day, I, I've talked to several people who've gone, gone quite recently, and they're still going, they're kissing the glass that is protecting the sculpture, and they're leaving little notes to Oscar Wilde uh, sort of stuck on the glass. And his grandson, Merlin Holland, goes there fairly often, and he collects these little messages and, and keeps them. And he, he was very struck by the fact that most of them were written by very young people, a lot of Italians too, he said. And, of course, Merlin Holland is very involved in the exhibition. Walk, yes. walk, walk us through the exhibition. Uh, well, it starts... It's kind of like a a building within a building. So it's in the, the Petit Palais, which is a wonderful... It was actually built in the year that Wilde died. It was built in 1900. And it's the sort of architecture and decor that, that Oscar Wilde would have known and, and loved. Uh, and then it, when you walk into the exhibition, there is blue and white lily wallpaper in the first room, which is a reminder that uh, Oscar Wilde, when he left Oxford and moved to London, had blue and white china in his rooms. And, and he self-proclaimed himself um, head of the aesthetic movement, and they loved uh, blue and white uh, lilies. And this was, this was one of their sort of motifs. Uh, and it goes more or less chronologically through his life and oeuvre. You, you meet his, his Irish mother, uh, Jane Francesca Elgie, who went by the name Speranza. There is uh, correspondence between the two of them. There are photographs of her. Um, there are also a lot of really beautiful pre-Raphaelite paintings because Wilde started out as, as an art critic in London and he wrote about these pre-Raphaelite painters and whom he appreciated very much. He, he'd been a student of John Ruskin and, and of also of Walter Pater's and he was very influenced by their philosophy of art and, and beauty. Um, there's a whole room devoted to his trip to America in 1882 uh, when he got to New York. A wonderful photographer called Napoleon Cerrone, I don't know where he got that name, uh, did a sitting with um, Wilde and did a series of uh, sepia photographs. In fact, I'm sure that most of our readers are familiar with those images of Wilde, although they might not know where they came from. And for the exhibition, Merlin Holland and, and the commissioners uh, managed to get 13 of the original photographs done by Cerrone, which is the first time they've shown that many in one place. And he's, he looks very much Oscar Wilde, very flamboyant and elegantly dressed. And in some of the photographs, he's wearing fur coats and hats, and he's sitting on sort of luxurious velvet sofas and, and this sort of thing. And these photographs were used to publicize his, his lecture tour across America. He did the entire breadth and, and length and breadth of America. He, he lectured to American Indians and to I, I, Quakers and Amish people, all every imaginable kind of people in America. He made a lot of money from the lecture tour, and then he went to Paris, and then there's a room dedicated to his years in, in uh, Paris and London. Uh, in Paris, he made a habit of looking for famous French writers. Uh, he, he actually met Victor Hugo, who was something like God at that time. Uh, he knew Mallarmé. Um, he, he also... 
you know, went to the sort of literary salon. He knew Zola as well. Uh, and he left Paris then to marry uh, Constance, Constance Lloyd with the encouragement of his mother. She was half Irish. Um, they had their honeymoon in Paris, actually. And they had two sons in two and a half years, uh, one of whom, Vivian, is the father of Merlin Holland. Um, and then there's a, there's a whole room on Salome. There's a, a film of a dancer performing it. There are oil paintings. Um, there's a, when you get to the last room, it's, it's actually quite sad because it's more or less the downfall of Oscar Wilde. And you have the Marcus of Queensberry's calling card on which he called Wilde a sodomite, and which uh, prompted Wilde to sue the Marcus of Queensberry. And then the Marcus of Queensberry countersued him for indecency with his son, um, Lord uh, Douglas, and uh, Lord Alfred Douglas. And then the rest is history. As you know, uh, he was convicted and sent to Reading Jail, and sort of two years doing hard labor. There's a, there's a note from Wilde to his jailer, actually a, a major in the British Armed Forces, thanking him for his kindness. And the kindness of Wilde's jailer was actually giving him paper and pencils so that he could continue writing while he was in prison. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite moving and it's very powerful. At the very end, there's a, uh, a video of an interview with uh, Robert Ballantaire, who was a French justice minister who's written a book on Wilde's trial and stay in Reading Jail. Again, this shows the great interest that the French have for this uh, incredible genius that was Oscar Wilde. I see, I see there's an associated talk entitled Oscar Wilde, a French writer. Um, but what is, <laughs> what is it about exiles from Ireland uh, in Paris? I mean, there's Wilde, there's Joyce, there's Beckett, there's Yeats. Uh, yes, uh, well, I think, first of all, I think Paris is, is very appealing to anyone of a literary bent from anywhere in the world. I mean, writers have been coming here for centuries. Uh, but for the Irish, uh, it's not England, one. Uh, it's fairly close by. Uh, most of them had learned French at school or as children. I mean, Beckett also went to Portora school like Wilde and he he studied French at TCD and then he went to he was on a sort of exchange between Trinity College Dublin and the Ecole Normale Supérieure. I, I think the cafe life really appealed to them. Wilde in, in these last three sad years of his life uh, would sleep very late which was actually something Beckett did as well and then uh, go to cafes. He would just as, as the Americans would say hang out in cafes and he'd spend his day Days sitting on cafe terraces, watching the world go by, drinking coffee and brandy. Um, Beckett was also a great cafe goer, and uh, he also had a, a pub he liked very much near the Gare Montparnasse. Um, so, th so that that literary life, too, the, the fact that the French write books and read books and talk about books, I think has always been something that has appealed to, to Irish writers. And uh, most of them have actually went to a lot of effort to get to know French writers. Wilde used to send his book of poetry uh, to people like Mallarmé before he ever came to Paris so that they knew who he was and he was greeted as, you know, cher maître when he arrived. Um, Joyce uh, would, would, would have been frequented Sylvia Beach's bookshop in, in Shakespeare and Company in the Rue de l'Odéon. Uh, Yeats's 
uh, appreciation of France was really channeled through Maud Gunn, the great love of his life. And he, in fact, he once, the only night he ever spent with her was in a, her little house near the Trocadero. Um, he used to visit her country house in Colville in, in Normandy. Uh, Yeats met Verlaine and Rimbaud. And when he co-founded the Abbey Theatre, uh, he used a lot of what he'd learned about theatre in France um, to, he applied that to theatre in Ireland. So this is a, a long tradition. There's been a lot of, uh, of um, influence, really, from Paris on Irish writers and, and on culture in Ireland. Well, thanks, Lara. It sounds like an exhibition well worth visiting, not to mention the cafes of Paris. So I would recommend that to our, our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Tom Hennigan and Lara Marla, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 